911, this is emergency operator 625. I'm just erupt. Okay, sir, I don't even know where you are. Last name? Is this the fire department? No, ma'am, you've reached 911, but I can connect you to fire. Just hold the I line. Can... What does she look like? She was tall, pink hair, in heels. Hey, man, can you tell me how long it's going to take? 911, what is the address of your emergency? I just want to talk to you. Okay, I'm hanging up. Just stop for a drive, sweetie, okay? Is there someone with you? Uh-huh. Does the person with know you called us? No. Who do they think you called? Your child? Yes, sweetie. Does the person you're with have a weapon? Yes. I need the color of the car, okay? When I say the right one, say it's fine. Red? White? It's fine. Is it a car? No, man. What? No, just yes or no, just yes or no answers, Emma. I'm sorry, I have to hang on. Give me the phone right now. I'm gonna die. I have a woman who's been abducted. What are we looking for? A white van. That's not enough. Come on! Mommy? I just talked to your mommy. She's gonna be okay. You promise? I promise. You have air support available? Negative. Air support is grounded due to fire weather. There is a scared little girl whose mother has been abducted. I need a better location. I'll get it. How will you get it? I know Emily's with you. Where are you going? Is your seatbelt on? No. Is Henry? Mom. No. Put yours on. Now listen. I need you to pull the handbrake hard. Pull it. Hello and welcome to Real Crime Profile. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer of CBS's Criminal Minds. With me today is... Um, hello, this is Lisa Zabetti, but this is Killer Casting. What are I'm you sorry, doing? I, what yeah, are what you are doing? Jim, Jim, what are you we doing in our studio? Both. You I'm said we were doing you. both. I'm just teasing you. Oh. I'm d- that was my joke. Oh my God. That was a very funny joke. Uh, I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hello, this is Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director for CBS of Criminal Minds and a host of Killer Casting. And this is a mashup between Real Crime Profile and Killer Casting. It is. And joining me is my oh, Laura could not be here today, which is a real bummer because I would love to know what she thought about the subject we're going to talk about today, but we do have my co-host, my right-hand man, my thunder from down under, Dean Laffin. Hey, Dean. Hey, Lisa and uh, crew. Jim, thank you very much for having us along to your pod. This is a very swanky pod, Lisa. Look at all this. This is better than Killer Casting. They've got <laughs> leather and they've got, they got shag pile and it's so swanky. Oh, yeah. we, need, we need to upgrade. Yeah, we need Jim, to upgrade. Jim looks really confused. Anyway. I'm totally confused with <laughs> what you're talking about, but you know, I suppose that's it's It's a mashup. we got to work it out. Got it. Okay. But we have two very special guests today, and they are Susan Nathplotus. I'm a retired dispatcher from June of 32 years at the Broward Sheriff's Office. And in what count in what state? Florida. Okay. Broward County, Florida. Florida. And we have another and? guest today. I am Katie at GT. A lot of people know me by GT. Um, I am a current 911 dispatcher. Uh, for Wise County Sheriff's Office in Decatur, Texas. And I have been for about four years now. 
Well, the reason that we have these two esteemed 911 dispatchers is why, Jim? Well, because we're going to be talking about Jake Gyllenhaal and this new movie called The Guilty. And it's an amazingly risky thing Mm -hmm. to have basically a movie surrounding one guy in one room. Yeah. But it's incredibly captivating and it's thrilling. It has you on the edge of your seat the whole time. I thought so, too. This is the next. It's a Netflix film. And it is, you know, Jim, at first I thought this was got to be based on like a one person play because it was very much like a play for me or like a bottle episode where Mm. it all takes place in one place and you start to get overwhelmingly claustrophobic. But yeah, I was totally captivated by this movie, which is why I wanted to jump on and talk about it. But I know there's probably some gaps between fact and fiction about a day in a life of this particular 911 dispatcher. Um, And I wanted to talk about it with some professionals. I wanted to talk about it with you, Jim, and just kind of get a beat by beat on how this story unfolds. All right. Well, and, let's dive in. And what happens. So I, I should say that this was um, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, but it also is starring a bunch of other actors that you don't see. Voice actors. Boy, that you hear. But boy, what a voice cast. And we can we can spoil that later because uh, this was directed by Antoine Fuqua. Uh, and written by Nick Pizzolatto, who also wrote True Detective. So, guys, I want to go to the very first beat of this movie. You are plunged right into what Jim and I know so well, California during the summer, and it's a summer of fire. And it is an incredible feeling. It feels like you cannot escape smoke when a summer like this happens. The the weather is hot. The air is full of smoke. There's a a lot of ash everywhere. It's ash everywhere. There's incredible sunsets because the, the sun ash- looks orange and pink and red instead of yellow. What I really appreciated was the radio that you could hear in the background. It was very accurate to me where you're hearing the fire rescue. And then when the call came in with the way that the people, they did the 911 callers, it was so right on for me. That's how citizens are when they call and the intensity of the environment also felt real to me. Cause that's what it feels like at work, especially with those fires and the way things looked sitting in there. When you said claustrophobic, you're just engulfed by what you're hearing occasionally. And especially Absolutely. if you have problems going on. Yeah. Do you also it, it have even... monitors like that in your in your center, in your command center? Not those big, huge, beautiful monitors, no, but we have TVs. And in my old center, I have to take that back. In my old center, um, before 2013, the majority of my career, we did have monitors like that, but then they changed things around. You how about to... you, Katie? I was just going to, I was agreeing with her. Like, it doesn't even matter how spacious or open or high tech your room is the the level of claustrophobia can be kind of intense sometimes just because of the constant noise um just by itself you know you have the noise that's always happening inside your ear and then you have this other ear they call it like a split ear so you have to constantly pay attention to what's going on inside your headphone um whether it's you know listening to a caller or or your radio traffic for whatever law enforcement agency you're dispatching. But then there's also so much going on around you that you also have to pay attention to. So 
it doesn't even matter how high tech the room is the the level of noise can just be really overwhelming sometimes well i wonder if they traced the pathways of your brain if you have developed a, a really like a super highway on two different sides of your brain because of the fact that you have to listen to two different totally different and sometimes very contradictory i would imagine pieces of information at the same time i think that, would be that does happen with us Yes. And as you go on, it gets even better. It happens all the time. You're in a restaurant. You can't help but hear your conversation and the people all around you. Wow. You never, mm. It never turns off. Once you learn it, once you grasp the concept of listening just to everything, it never turns off. Wow. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I was undercover for three years. And during that time, I had I was wearing a recording device. And of course, I had to pay attention to whatever I was doing, but also all the criminal conversations that were going on around me. I was on the floor of the New York Mercantile Exchange as a broker. And every time I heard the word FBI in that setting, obviously I had to worry about it. One time I was walking to the elevator and I heard, yeah, that's the FBI guy. And I was like, oh my God. My I'm cover's blown. blown. Cover's and blown. They, <laughs> and they were talking about they were try talking about Kyle on Twin Peaks. And uh, you know, so every time I go to a restaurant, Still to this day, if somebody in the restaurant mentions FBI, I hear it right away. Right. It's just not well, something I could ever get rid of. But well, yeah. let's talk about this first guy that we see. So we immediately see Jake Gyllenhaal, and he does not look like he's in good shape. He's in the bathroom under that fluorescent lighting that oh, is just so making harsh. him look green. He's 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 just working his inhaler. He looks very tense right away. You're tense. Right. There is something going on with this guy and he walks into then you see he's in a call center and you just think he's in a he's a 911 operator. You don't know any backstory. Ladies, have you commented that the call center looks pretty realistic to you, but probably more shiny, more more Hollywoody, more high tech than maybe a normal call center would look? Well, only with the TVs, because like I said, before 2013, when we were in one building with all of 911, it looked like that. You had your own desk. And still at this 911 center that I recently retired from, you do have the four boards in front of you. So you have your dispatching board, and then you have the calls coming in that you need to give out. And then you have another computer system where you're going to attach to talk to like FHP or the Florida Highway Patrol so that was realistic, just not the big TV screens. Right. That I think that was uh, that kind of added just another level of chaos to the show. Um, exactly. Because typically you don't in a call center, you they want a very calm environment. Mm. And so adding the chaos of the, the television and just the fires blazing everywhere in the chaos, I, I think that was a little much. Yeah, and, and but those great big screens make a nice canvas because the whole thing's shot yeah. internally, right? So it's a way to bring the outside world in okay. and to show what's going on outside of the building. It's a, it's a nice little graphic device. So I just want to ask you about the first couple of calls he gets. He gets a call from a guy who's like, sounds like he's on drugs, man, you know, and then he gets a call from a guy who is like, talking about how he's being robbed and and I mean there's a certain blaseness to Gyllenhaal when he's taking these calls it's like at first he's really listening and he's like okay this guy this first guy he's on drugs you know the second guy oh you've been robbed really and he's by a prostitute that he was paying <laughs> bless yeah. your heart 
So how do you, I mean, do you find yourself getting a little bit jaded sometimes when you get calls and especially the, the, the guy who calls, he says, yes, hello, I'm personal friends with the governor. This is Matthew, uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm here on business. And it's like, does that ring true Absolutely. for you? Those kind of calls? Absolutely. There have been, I can't tell you how many times, just countless amounts of times where we'll get calls, someone demanding that we come to them right now because I'm friends with the sheriff. And in the back of your mind, you're kind of like, well, if you're best friends with the sheriff, maybe you should have called, called him in. about it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, but we ha- we still have to at least act empathetic, even though we may have heard the same story a thousand times that day. Uh-huh. We still have to, you know, well, that's unfortunate, ma'am. I'll take your information. We'll pass it on. You know, his right. attitude was is definitely, I would say, how you feel, but you don't want to show because you want to stay professional. But it's how we right. all feel and wish we could act like, certainly, I would say. Really? Right. Yeah. So you can tell he's sort of got a swagger to him as he's talking. He's not that concerned about being super professional. I mean, right off the bat, it doesn't seem to be. And in fact, so he calls up his sergeant. This is where we start to really get a little bit more um, information. He ends up calling his sergeant to say, hey, can you you know, send somebody over to help this guy who's been robbed by a sex worker? And you learn that he's actually a cop who's been assigned desk a detective. Duty. Does that happen? I mean... Not in the way that the the show did it, because no. they would usually have him. And nowadays, they don't have him come up at my center anyway to sit on the desk. But back in the day, if they would, it would be if a 911 dispatcher had an issue and then, OK, I'm going to transfer you to talk to an officer who's sitting up here to answer your questions. They would not be just thrown in to answer calls at where I work. Okay. Sure. It's kind of the same with us. Yeah, uh, we we have had a couple of our deputies there you know there's sometimes a disconnect in personalities between our dispatchers and our deputies and so sometimes if the disconnect is large enough the superiors might say like okay well since the deputy doesn't seem to understand the dispatcher's job and the intensity of it or the, the attention to detail that has to happen and how much is going on in their center now you can go sit and you can go listen and oh, that's kind of cool that's a great way to to sort of um i don't know beat somebody down who's trying to uh to sort of throw his weight around and not not actually appreciate what you people do in that right. center. It can be a little backhanded also because a lot of times we don't want them in there. So you know, Bob, that seems <laughs> you know. to be so Katie, you said you've been doing it for years. At your center, do they have scripted 911 or is it a free No, we're not pro QA. We do uh, free scripted. So we Oh, that's the way it should be. That's yeah. the way. It All right. Well, be. wait, wait, wait. You guys are using you yeah. are using terms of art that we need to explain. I'm sorry. What is scripted and pre-scripted? What is so that? So scripted nine one one is a new thing that's come on internationally in the nine one one centers where they want you to read literally a script to ask questions, and you have to do it in order on whatever situation you get, and it's basically a really horrible thing mm-hmm. to have happened to the profession because people are, we have a critical shortage because of the complication that these cards add to. People are quitting because of it. Yeah. It it takes the personalization out of the whole situation. We, we are taught to, you know, stay subjective and, you know, don't take any of it home with you, but there are certain instances where you need to be able to deviate from set questions in order to figure out what's going on, you know, like it might, okay, so you may have a labor and delivery call where you have to have 
certain questions answered. Well, if you're reading from this pro Q&A, this list of scripted questions, you may not be able to ask certain things like what kind of complications have you had during your pregnancy or have you or how old are you or so things like that. So it's one script for every call, not yes. for each no. type of call? Well, no, every no type it's a of script call. for every kind of call. But what what she's saying, what I brought, why I brought it up is because that disconnect you mentioned, Katie, is so on point. Because if you were to call me up, Lisa, and you're going through whatever it is that's so upsetting and you're going on about, oh my God, I need you to come out here. And then I say, okay, Lisa, I need you to, because he didn't do that. He was reading off of the screen where an address comes in. You have to ask for that address and you have to ask it to be repeated twice. And then I start reading from a card said, okay, Lisa, I want you to tell me exactly what happened. And then you would say, I just told you this guy came in, my boyfriend came in and he punched me in the stomach and I'm, I have to slow you down. And it yeah, what happens a, when somebody says he's here and I'm hiding in the closet? I can't talk. What do you do? So you would have to flip to the card and it would tell you you have to push a button to create a call to go to, to dispatch. And then you would ask, OK, I want you to just stay on the phone with me. I want you to push a button one time for whatever question I want you to say yes to or two times for no. And then you go on to see whatever those questions are on the card set. Wow. You kind of have to follow a script do the, are they armed? Has anyone been on drugs? Has anyone, is anyone uh, uh, drunk or intoxicated or anything like that? But you have to follow that script. But if, if she says, I have no idea who they are, you still have to ask all those questions. Yeah. And And that sounds really ridiculous. Yeah. And it adds it, minutes on a job where seconds count. Exactly. Yeah. I, think I imagine right. it was probably created for some reason in the beginning to have just sort of consistency yeah, because, and yeah, quality. Consistency, right. But consistency isn't what saves lives. No, you need people who have a strong foundation and the ability to guide somebody through their worst moments. And that needs to come from good training and a solid understanding, like Katie said, of what our job is. It's to get you from A to B and those officers or those fire people to understand what they're responding to. That's our job. It's, right. I mean, it's essentially just crisis management in that moment. Every single moment can be just simple as crisis management, whatever their crisis may be. Well, let's talk about this 911 dispatcher who definitely goes off script for sure. So he gets a couple calls. Then Jake Gyllenhaal gets this fourth call. And I'd love to know how you all would have handled a call like this. All he, he hears breathing. He's really got to coax the caller out to figure out what's I think going he did, on. He did good. I right. think now you would never put somebody like that on hold, like the no. way he was putting them on hold and going to other situations. They've made the job where you could you stay active with that person and you get other things done through your computer. Right. Gosh. And that's the purpose of having an entire communication center. So you can remain on this call actively involved and actively talking to this person and you're the people around you are the ones that make those other calls. So like mm. I know for my center, every call that's created when it comes in, we we can all see the notes that are being put in. So I can type fast and furious and my partner can dispatch a deputy or fire an EMS or whoever needs to go to the call and get someone there. And I never have to stop talking to my caller. 
And then Jim, and like we were talking about with that dispatch here, she would hope that the people sitting around her will hear what she's dealing with and would start picking up. Oh, it sounds like Katie needs me to do this and that. Okay, Katie, I've got it. And it keeps going like that. And we are kind of, you know, you, once you get used to your team, your, your shift and everything, I know there's things that I can say, like, so that my team will kind of perk up and listen, I can say, okay, we have a physical in progress. Has anyone been hit? Or are you sure they're not breathing? Things like that, that Mm -hmm. I'll really, really kind of enunciate and kind of really stress that are they breathing? And then my whole room can perk up Mm -hmm. and say, okay, now we need to pay attention to this. Let's get fire and EMS. Let's get deputies. Let's get everybody that needs to go rolling. I, I like the way he stayed with it. Yeah, he see, he ascertains that this woman is being abducted and cannot answer him freely. And so he tries to coax her out with this sort of code, say yes to this, say that. How did you, did, what did you think of that, Jim? That whole. Well, yeah, I thought that was inventive. And he knew and kind of predicted that if she answers outside of the yes or no's, that whoever this guy was, was going to respond, react, because he could hear her. And so he said, no, stick with the yes or no's. I think that's really important. And then obviously he was led down a certain path and he was very concerned about her safety and and he came up with a way to try to deal with it. Now, Katie, I was wondering when, because almost right away, you guys, I don't know how fast anybody else, but curious for me, Katie, is I knew right away that she had harmed the child. Yes. You did. What tipped you to that? My gut feeling and the way, I guess the way she was kind of sing song. Right. Right. I I, I couldn't tell what her involvement was, but I knew that she, she's not the victim here. This is, this is going to be kind of twisty turny. But, if she was being sing song because she was pretending to talk to her daughter and I totally get, and I totally support your intuition on this because it's a educated gut. We all think of it as intuition. I believe it's actually your subconscious, which works 10 billion times faster than your conscious mind. And it calculates data that you are not even aware of that you're calculating. So it's telling you when you feel that gut feeling, it's your subconscious telling you, guess what? There's more things here. You haven't caught up right. yet to it. But yeah, this is how you should be thinking. So you're absolutely right, obviously. But it's not something that not everybody doesn't have the experience would right. ever know. And not everybody. That's why I wanted to know, Katie, that four years on, if she found if she felt that before we knew. Because I felt it, I was trying, I watched it again this morning so I could tell you guys exactly when it was before he was advising her to get the brick though. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, later in, I definitely, well, Jim and I, you know, we read every iteration of this Mm -hmm. kind of thing for the shows we work on. Or lived it. Or lived. Oh yes, exactly. So, you know, it did occur to me at some point that there was going to be a switch. Jim and I and Laura cover so much about coercive control and domestic abuse. Like I was very curious on how he was going to handle this and that I wanted him to pursue it and not just be like, oh, well, chips will find them and pick them up. Like I was so glad that he was going the extra mile to like, no, you know, there's an abduction going on. You know, this was a real 911 call. This was the the call that 
that's why we do the job for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And I did think that when he was pursuing it, I was glad that he was pursuing it. And I thought he's going to get in trouble for this because he's going outside the bounds of what he's supposed to do. When he talked to the daughter, for example, and then sent people there for a welfare check and stuff, I thought that was really good. That that's something that, you know, you have to do. Is that within I mean, the purview, though, of your job? Yes. Oh, OK, absolutely. And then on top of that, you know, the fact that he's trying to because he can't identify the van and the chips can't identify the, the van that basically he has to get her to do something to try to draw attention to the van. And so he has her pull on the brake and hopefully that would have stopped right. the van or crashed the van. And, and then this guy wouldn't have been able to do what he, what he was doing. But I thought the issue, like when he actually called the guy and told him, I know what you're doing that to that me was a crusty. major risk he overstepped big yeah time. you couldn't do that because you could get sued and like when he was giving opinions so you know you should it's your own fault you're the one who was doing the drugs those kind of things you can't say no obviously yeah. Yeah. right so, but jim yeah, i was yeah, thinking no. that if he had done that i mean as you've said so many times sometimes these are murder suicides that if you yeah. called and identified yourself as a cop and that you i know what you did you could trigger him to I just know. it's over right yeah so, so that didn't very seem risky realistic right. but the guy's response don't wouldn't you have expected him to say a little more um when he's doing what he's doing for and that the right might reason? have supported my gut that he his reaction was he was upset i heard i heard pain in his voice too mm-hmm. and, he was upset right and but he was trying to protect her uh-huh. right he didn't want her to get arrested for what he did what she did but at the same time, he was doing something he felt that was going to save her by getting her to this mental hospital and getting her help. The crew had put a ladder over the studio wall. I would climb up it in between setups and Antoine Fuqua, our director, would come out of his van down the block and we would sort of yell at each other from afar like Romeo and Juliet. Hello, I'm Jake Gyllenhaal, and I am about to take you through a scene in The Guilty, shot by shot. Have you been abducted? Yes. 911, emergency operator 625, what is the address of your emergency? So this scene is probably the most pivotal scene in the movie because it's really, in a lot of ways, where the train starts to move. Hello? Is this Emily? Sorry, you called 911. Joe Baylor, the character that I play, meets Emily Lighton, who is the woman that throughout the rest of the movie he's going to try and save. Don't be afraid. Are you even drinking? No, I haven't. Why did you call us? This was one of the first moments I exchanged any acting or or had any exchange with Riley Keough, who plays Emily, in this context. I mean, I'd spoken to Riley on the phone before we started shooting a tiny bit, but the way we set it up was that all the actors on the other end of the line were on a Zoom call, and they were all over the world. Okay, I'm hanging out. Don't just stop for a drive, sweetie, okay? Come on, Who is that? Because of Zoom and because of all the sound that was used in the movie, I was hearing my own voice repeat back to me in this whole sequence that you're watching. So I'm actually trying desperately to act like it's not happening. 
Is the person you would know you called us? No. Who do they think you called? Yes, yes, sweetie. Your child? Yes. The interesting part of the structure of the scene is that Antoine Fuqua was trying as hard as he could through the beginning of the movie not to move his camera. If you look at the shots, you can see there's cutting from angle to angle, but the camera itself doesn't move at all. Okay, I'm just trying to keep calm. I'm gonna figure out where you are. All right, I show that you're outside city limits. Just keep pretending like you're talking to your child, okay? Talk to me like I'm your child. His desire from the beginning was to try and play in long shots. So the five minutes of this sequence, we shot for 20 minutes each time. But I had all the people around me moving around and cueing extras, so it all felt really natural and all in one real moment as opposed to cutting. Do you see fire? Yes. Okay, when you look out your window, is it on your left or on your right? Yes. Your left? Okay, you're going east. We shot the movie in October of 2020, and we're also grateful to be making the movie. But the Friday, before we were supposed to start shooting, we got word that Antoine Fuqua, our director, had been near someone who had tested positive for COVID, which meant he couldn't be on set for 12 days. And we had an 11-day shoot. So we devised this plan that we got this van with monitors in it. Is it a car? No. Truck? No, just yes or no, just yes or no answers, Emily. So Antoine ended up directing the entire movie from the confines of a van a block away from the stage. It was quite an experience. Antoine wanted to make sure that I could stay healthy, so he shot all my stuff as quickly as he could to make sure he had the movie before anything happened. Okay, I have to put you on hold. No, no. I have to. Just hold the line, Emily. Act like you're comforting your child, okay? And then we came back and shot shots at the back of my head, the insert of the call light coming in. All of those shots were shot the last two days of filming. California Highway Patrol. This is Officer Joe Baylor, LAPD Communications. I have a woman who's been abducted. So I think one of the things that's really interesting about Joe Baylor, the character I play, is that he thinks he's doing well. Okay, sweetie. Emily, I'm back. He has so many things going on outside of this phone call. His daughter he's trying to connect with who he can't connect with, and his wife he's trying to call. He's been trying to call her right before this, and she didn't pick up. And then she finally calls right when he's on the phone where he can't hang up. Shit. That adds extra pressure for him because he knows it was a call he was waiting for forever, and then he just missed it. He might not be able to talk to his wife or his daughter again. She only wants to talk to you, Emily. Tell him that. She only wants to talk to you. She doesn't want to talk to you. I'm sorry. But at the time, in October of 2020, to make a movie, to go back to work, was supremely unrealistic. And one of the reasons I think a lot of people allowed us to do this was because there was one character, and it could be kept as safe as you could probably possibly keep a set at the time. Emily, I need the color of the car, okay? When I say the right one, say it's fine. Red, blue, white. I think we all were so proud by the end. We all got out of there safely. It was a real testament to the incredible crew that we got through it like we did. My name is Joe, I'll be waiting. Emily, do you hear me? I will be waiting. My name is... The Guilty is now streaming on Netflix. I did feel that they did a great job in the story and Jake did that, you know, Antoine does stuff that is, he specializes in those really kind of tense things, right? So training day, he did both of the 
I think more baby relatable to this. He did again with Denzel. He did both the equalizers. So he really knows how to make a scene and make it tense. And we open with that, right? As you said, Joe, we open with Jake and you, you understand within minutes, this guy is not well, right? He is, mm. he is wound up to level 11, right? And what's interesting from a film point of view is that Antoine's happy to let you see that from frame one, right? And so the question is, so often a movie will build in a slow burn to moments of high tension, but we open with that. So I was watching it going, where are we going to go from here? You know, like, where do you go from right. level 11? So that's what right. the interesting construct about it was that they managed to then keep you at that same level throughout the film, right? And as yeah. we move through the MacGuffins and the bits and pieces, but it was uh, it was a bold opening. And then you sort of start to understand, you know what? There's a reason why this guy has been put on the bench and taking 911 calls because- right. You know, the way that he reacts inappropriately, I would say, <laughs> to these, to the incoming 911 calls tells you that he, he is uh, impulsive and well, makes decisions. He's personalizing yeah. it too, right? Oh, yeah. He's kind of taking it on because of the stress in his own life, his relationship with his own child, his relationship yes. with his own yeah. wife, that it set seems to be pushing him towards some really bad decisions. Yes. And, and so, you know, his, his work life is out of control. His personal life is out of control. And so I think what he's trying to do is, is like, I think the character's meant to be that if he can impose order on this chaotic incoming call, that somehow that's going to help him, right? He's got chaos everywhere. He can't control what's going to happen in court the next day. He can't control the fact that he can't see his daughter or talk to her. He's got no power there. If I can just fix this, then yeah. everything will be better. I'll feel better and the world will be a bit better. I think there's a, they do a good job of getting that across. So, yeah. What did you all think of this call? I'm sorry. What did you all think of this call with Abby, the little girl? So he takes the step to actually call the home landline. The little girl picks up Abby. She's so accurate. And tell us what what that's like when you have to deal with a real child. Children seem to be or children are the best to deal with on 911. Really? They tend to be calm. calm. Yes. They don't get opinionated, judgmental, demanding. Right, Katie? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've taken a call where uh, the, the little girl that called was 11, I think. She was 10 or 11, and her infant baby brother was choking on something, and she oh. stayed calm the whole time. Her parents didn't speak English. She talked to me. She told me every detail that I needed to know. We were able to get there. He was fine. He ended up being fine. But wow. the the she was so calm compared to her parents that were just frantic. You could just hear them screaming in the background and she just kept telling me everything. She answered every question. That's every child is the best to deal with. Yes. Wow. I think it's just because their level of um, understanding of the situation isn't what uh, the parents might be, you know, so the parents experience a different kind of chaos than what a child would in certain kind of situations. But in this case, he's listening. He's getting information from this little girl. He gets information that the daddy that has is with the mom Mm -hmm. and that the daddy doesn't live there and that he was angry and scared and crying and there was a knife. But I don't know. There's a lot of misdirection with all that. Yeah, exactly. Well, you could um, you have to watch because you don't want to let your mind decide what's happening. So that's where some of his presumption of the father did this because it's typical. The father went in, they were having a domestic, he hurt the child, he's abducted the mother. Instead of staying open and saying, oh, she could, the mother could be sick and some have a mental issue going on and a different thing is happening. 
Like the only thing, because my sister got upset, she's like, how could he have left the one child there with the Mm -hmm. stabbed infant? Mm -hmm. And I said, he probably saw that as the only way to protect the wife. Not only that, but probably protect the other child too. Yeah, what if she thought get that her away the other kid from, was yeah. Oh right. The wife is the danger, so mm-hmm. he's removing the danger. But then in in situations like made that, you also assumption have to... that the, the other kid was dead. Right. Yes. And that's why you have to remain kind of objective. You can't draw conclusions from what you have because you you're only hearing and and it, it's very hard to direct calls, especially with kids, sometimes it can be difficult to direct them because you do have to give them very specific prompts, very specific questions, but you also have to be careful not to lead them to give you a kind of a, not a false statement, but not exactly the truth at the same time. Can I just ask in your career, did you ever just decide that you would up and leave your desk and go off to a little side office and draw the blinds? And (laughs) I didn't think so. I thought that might be a little bit of an unrealistic He was definitely going beyond what he should have been doing at that time. He was, it was a way for him to hide, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So things, things are escalating and he's not only pulling in favors for a welfare check. Now he's calling his partner who he's been suspended from to go to um, the father's house and kick down the door and try to find some kind of clue on where the father may be taking the abducted wife. And then you start, so the storytelling is just so interesting to me that now it starts to come pouring out that they're going to court in the next day. His partner is the witness. Yeah, we'll get his background. Yeah, and there's something hinky. There's there's something very awkward going on that he's been offered immunity. So you know that there's some kind of cover up going on, but you're not really sure why. And I like that they're not super specific. We don't know if it has to do with some sort of race related all you know all the political powder keg that we're dealing with now it could be a lot of different things but whatever it is it's not good and Um, when you're upset in this kind in this line of work it makes it even harder to do like to stay emotionally detached which is what is the goal as a professional in this job you want to stay just the calm authority but when you're going through something at home yeah. Your emotions get out there more. Speaking and- of that, when you have a call that is emotional, that is serious, that is involving children, for example, and I know this is something that we had to deal with all the time in the behavioral analysis unit, you move on. You go on to the next 10 or to. 20 or 100 or 1,000 other cases, and you never actually know what happened in most of the cases, right? Right. How do you deal with that? For me, it never, I guess I'm not that curious. I never needed to know. I just kept, and for me, I prefer police dispatching. I stepped out of 911 once the scripted 911 came into play for me. Mm. I could not handle the pressures of what I knew to do and do well, becoming so scrutinized under reading a script where you lost so much connection. So I stepped out of 911 two years ago. Not only lose connection, but your years or decades of experience, mm-hmm. which told you what was right or wrong and what I, what you should do in this given situation was all thrown out the window. Yes. Like for that, all you need is AI. Why would you have human beings do this? And maybe that's the goal of how things are going with the scripted. They want to test it. I wouldn't be shocked to see that in the yeah. future. 
It's ridiculous. It sounds it's like the voice mail systems you get. You know, if you want to press a, if you need a sales, press one. If you need a, yeah, you're going to have people in the middle of a life threatening situation, forced to deal with, you know, what you're basically turning it into is yeah. you know a, a voicemail system. You're right. Right. And I'm going to ignore an endless loop of yeah. I'm going to ignore one. what you're feeling. And I'm just going to repeat this sentence and I'm not going to say, look, Jim, please, you called me, allow me to help you. We're going to get through this together, Jim. Okay. I just need to know this. Instead, I got to say, okay, Jim, I need you to tell me exactly this. Right. You know, too bad. Something that I love about the movie is that it's almost like a radio play because you're in Jake Gyllenhaal's ear and all of these events are playing out that he can't see. So at one point, the little girl, Abby, calls him and says, police are at the door and he's trying to tell her to be calm and let them in. And then you kind of hear this almost like this radio play of the police going through the house, mm. finding the infant who's been, we find out later, you know, if he's been stabbed, mm-hmm. but not not dead. But And all of this chaos starts to erupt in that house. I just think that was so brilliant. And you really have to use your own imagination to see it. Now, they could have, now, Jim and I know, they could have played this whole story out in a very typical procedural way, right? right? Where we see everything that happens, but instead you're locked into this room with, with him. And he feel, you can feel how frustrated he is. Like he can't do anything, right? He can Because he's talk. used to being involved, like you're saying. Right. Right, right. So right. for him, it was even harder. Katie and I are used to just hearing. So right. I, even then, us, it's still it can still be very frustrating because, I mean, like many first responders, we know how to do CPR, just like a, you know, fire EMS deputy, anything like that. But you can tell sometimes on a call when someone's not doing CPR correctly, and you just want to jump through the phone and make them do it right. You know, there's you can only do so much. You can only say so much, you know. You have to do it this way. You have to do it that way. And you just have to trust that that's what they're going to do. They're just that they're going to listen to you. You must feel so helpless sometimes, though. Sometimes. Jim, I wanted to ask you, you have talked many, many times on Real Crime Profile about do not ever get in a car with anybody. If somebody is threatening your life, aiming a gun at you to get in the car, don't. But I'm just wondering if for some reason you got in the car is this a good maneuver to pull the handbrake? I thought it was kind of a fascinating tactic that that Jake gives her to try to get away from who we think is a kidnapper. What do you think about that? Well, in the situation where there are, there are highway patrolmen out looking for this van and you're mm-hmm. trying to make it stand out, that's a good move. But also, if in the situation where you're actually in the front seat with the guy, which I think was strange. And that might've also given you some insights, Mm -hmm. Susie, to how, why she might have been in a different position than, than Gyllenhaal thought she was. But I don't, in general, people who are are abducting people, um, don't put them out in plain view, obviously. <laughs> That's not know, a front seat kind of situation. It's not Although typically it did a front happen. Seat. It did happen to victim F. She was in the front seat. But that's after a long period of being under somebody's control. Right. But anyway, the point is, as you said, I do tell people fight with your life for your life. If somebody's trying to move you from one location to another, do not willingly go thinking, OK, well, this will work out better. It's always going to be worse. They're taking you to a place they have more privacy and control. 
And right. That, Let's get it on right here and yes, right now. Right here, we're right not now. getting it on someplace else. Uh, exactly. No. And so, yeah, um, if you were put in the front of a car and there's somebody driving, yeah, put your seatbelt on and yank that emergency brake smash the windows, do whatever you possibly can to draw attention to you because you don't want that person taking you to another location. I know I personally would, they would want to give me back after a certain amount of time. They would want to let me go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. you, I like we learned yes. in the FBI Academy, use your personal weapons, use a pen, use your fingers, gouge out eyes, rip off ears, mm -hmm. scratch eyes out everything you possibly can as gross as that sounds it's how you save your life yeah it really is and i i spent some time in the marine corps and that is one of the things that they train you how how you fight someone is fight like your life actually depends on it you know like this could be it if you don't fight with everything this will be it right it's not a fair fight when somebody tries to take you not yeah. at all so here's where we head to the, the turning point of the film, because after she does this maneuver with the brake, he shoves her in the back of the van. And uh, then you have this very sing. This is where I knew <laughs> I, I knew that what, we were getting where? a switcheroo. So Jake is trying to get her to calm down, calm down and find something, some kind of weapon in the back of the van to hit him when, when he takes her out of the van and her sing songiness. It's like you kind of said, Susie, the mm -hmm. thing about the aquarium, this sort of Very dreamy, flighty. this dreamy thing. I'm like, all right, <laughs> this, all right this, why this, is she hitting on him? Right. Yeah, I wish right. they're not planning yeah. their first date here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he realizes, oh, fuck, <laughs> I got <laughs> the wrong. I got the wrong person here. And he tries to do all this damage control. Uh, and it just kind of. Oh, I didn't catch that. I thought because I was trying to remember or see how he finally realized his mistake because he still wanted her to get the brick and hit the guy. Yeah. But then he sort of uh, he just realizes she starts talking about Oliver and the snakes. And oh, that's I think, right. And okay. He just kind of yes. freezes like. Uh, oh, yes. And then it happens. He hits. She hits him, you know, and then we have. Uh, it was already spiraling at that point. Yeah. Oh, she it said, all came. For, for okay. me, it was whenever she said, I don't want to get locked up again. Or I or right. he, yeah. they're going to lock yeah. me up again. Yeah, I was exactly. like, light bulb. There it is. Mm. Yeah. What yeah. a sick feeling in, in the pit of his stomach when he realizes it. I mean, I felt it. And I was like, oh, my God. And that's now when he do? saw his judgment against the father. Right. And then he saw himself. At what we didn't know, but then he was looking at himself in his own judgment. Right. Hmm. And now he's got the same, he's got still got the same job to do, but he's actually got to now chase a different outcome than what he thought, right? right. He's still got to operate remotely. Only now he understands what's going on. And so it's, it's like, we, I still need to go. I still need to drive this thing, but I thought we're going South, but we're actually got to be going North, you know? And then he gets uh, he's the information big from time. His, yeah. Then he gets the information from his partner, right? About, you that know, he, her lockup, right? Yeah. And that and, it looks like he was trying to take her back to right. the state hospital and he's exactly. able to get And the, now he's got a brick in his head. Um, <laughs> you know, right, right. Uh, that's not a good place to be. I mean, um, she did good, but it was not good. <laughs> no. 
And then they were on a bridge, right? Because yeah. then he was trying to prevent her from killing herself. Right. Correct? Right. Yeah. Right. So he, the- he's able to talk to the husband who gets to monologue about what the real story is, played by the great Peter Sarsgaard, does an amazing vocal job on this. And then they realize that she's on an overpass and it sounds like she's getting ready to jump and he's trying to talk her down. And he's he talks her down by what? By By confessing to her. I killed a man. Now, again, we don't really get the full story, but he killed a 19 year old boy because he wanted to punish him. He did something to hurt someone. My dad. So, again, I don't really know what happened, Mm -hmm. but maybe you don't really need to know. I don't know. What do you think, Jim? I I mean, I thought that that scene was really well done because throughout the film, you learn that he's been he is so tense and he's so wound up because he's carrying the psychic burden of the fact that he's got, he's going into court the next day and he's expecting, he, he and his partner have arranged and all of his cop buddies are expecting he's going to get off, right, because there's not enough evidence, right? If they stick to their story, they'll be fine. But the guilt of what he did is still weighing on him. And, and so now he's just confessed on tape. Right, exactly. And the word confessed is spot on, Jim and Lisa, because the way they shoot that and because the film is so claustrophobic, the extreme close-up that they use on that, it's like he's in a confessional box. Yeah, and and he realizes as she's he's he's like, she's gonna jump, she's gonna jump, she's gonna jump. And he's thinking, and you can see the wheels turning his head. What can I possibly do to connect to this woman? And then he realizes he has to surrender, he has to release this guilt, and he has to tell her that I killed this guy. I've got something with you. He knows it's going to be on nine one on the, on the tape. So he's giving his life or his freedom to try and save hers. Right. He's, he's made that decision. Okay. I can't do this anymore. It's killing me. I can't bear it. So, all and right. I'm going I to think give you this. too that he saw himself, Dean, almost getting this other man killed in his judgment. Mm-hmm. And then he saw, and then I did that at work. And yep. for me, I was curious. I wanted to know what that 19-year-old had done because did the 19-year-old just was an asshole and he's frustrated and so he shot him because he's just done? Or did that 19-year-old rape an infant and yeah. do something horrendous that he was judge and jury? He seems like a decent guy, uh, right, Joe? So I think the guy probably did something bad, and he, but he, you know, he's become judge, jury, executioner, right? So that's obviously we don't right. want that. Um, but or he, in the moment, yeah, 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 moment. exactly. Yeah, just went, yeah, because he's impulsive, so that's quite possible. But I just think, like, when his partner, when he said to his partner, "Look, you know, I'm, you got to tell the truth tomorrow," his partner's like, "But you're not going to see your daughter for years," and his head sags, and he mm-hmm. says, "Yeah, I know," but he's decided that he has to do this because it's just too much. Right. I think he finally realized that his impulsivity almost ruined somebody else's life. And so he kind of thought, well, why do I deserve to get off on something that I've done? Yeah. Yeah. You deserve. Know? Yeah. Good point. Just, just because I have a daughter. Well, this guy has a daughter. This guy yep. has a family. This guy has a, a son. Yep. So just going back to that moment where he does end up talking Emily down off the overpass, although it, they make it seem like dramatically that she might have jumped. Right. Those must be horrific calls to get. Have you gotten calls like that where people are I've about to do self-harm? Suicide, and- but I've never lost a suicide. I've had co-workers yeah. that have heard people jump. That have heard yeah. people shoot themselves. I never lost anybody. Katie, have you? No, fortunately. 
but it seems like a yeah. tactic might be to personalize like he did. Like, I, you know, when he says I killed somebody, that's before scripted. Jim, isn't that definitely. Like a, yeah, well, I mean, yeah. that's the whole thing. I mean, script. How scripted nine one one going to handle that? I mean, how do right. you frigging anticipate? It keeps everything so. I guess they're clinical, uh, sterile. Right, because I always, on all of my suicides, I would always say, I know that you feel like the hell you're in is going to last forever, but if you were to commit suicide, it truly becomes eternity. I would connect mm -hmm. that way, but on scripted, yeah. I couldn't say any right. of these. Right. And when stuff. you're on the phone with an active suicidal person, it's almost like a hostage negotiation. Mm -hmm. You you don't have, you can't be scripted and cold. You have to oh. be empathetic. You have to be able to, right. even if it's not the truth, you don't have to tell them every deepest, darkest secret that you have, but you do have to be connect. able to level with them and connect with them and let them know that, hey, hey, I'm here with you. I'm not going anywhere. I've had people tell me, I know this is not what you signed up for. And I'm like, no, this is absolutely what I signed up for. This is my job. My job is to answer the phone whenever you call and stay with you as long as you need. Mm -hmm. And wow. a lot of times people, it kind of brings people back to reality of, uh, okay, well, this person cares. You know, right. it's as yeah. simple as that. Just that this person cares enough because I'll tell them I'll stay on you on with you for the rest of the night if that's what we need to do. Because right. police dispatch and 911 and fire. But all of that, your job is when shit hits the fan, you stay calm through it. That's right. you have your to. job. And one of the things that I noticed about him, it kind of about Joe was that his level of anxiety was peak the whole time. He was yeah. peaked. Yeah. Yeah. The whole time. And that was great because yes. you can feel like that, you know, especially if things aren't going right at home, you can absolutely walk onto your shift and just already be overwhelmed just by the sounds in the room. And, you know, on top of what you're going through personally, it's really hard to disconnect sometimes, but you have to, or you will stay peak anxiety and your your level of care for your callers will just continuously go down oh yeah so the empathy the badder you are the more stressed you are that empathy is out the window you got to yeah. really absolutely brain it to feel at all absolutely self-stress well then I, I feel like whenever he finally did confess on you know on the recorded line to her that that was when his stress level just broke you know yeah. and any any supervisor would have said a long time before he got to that position, hey, go take a break, take 10, take 15, or do you need to go home for the night? Because I feel like something's off, something's not right. You know, you also as a supervisor have to manage the quality that your your callers are getting. Well, I thought it was so ironic because there is this sort of release that happens once Emily is taken, she's safe, they take her. And then the supervisor comes in and says, oh, the kid, Oliver, he's actually, they got him to the hospital. So he's safe. And everybody is sort of like, oh, good job. Well done. And I'm thinking, no, I don't think so. I think yeah. this is not exactly the greatest job done. <laughs> no. Well, no, no, I think I have to say, I agree that he did a great job in accomplishing the goal of getting help to them, though he let a judgment come in with the brick and hit the guy. But the rest of how things went down, I think he did a great job. Yeah, but how do you avoid, if she's telling you that I am being abducted, how do you not advise her how to get out of that? How do you avoid that? 
Right. I don't think that he could. And I like that he stayed on the phone. He got help, which would have been much easier than him making these phone calls. Like me and Katie said, he would have just created a case number for the different jurisdictions that they were driving through to get her help. Mm. But his anger, his frustration, all of that is, especially with the critical shortage that we have in this profession and Mm. that kind of mean culture climate that they showed in the centers, at least for where I work. It's, it was very accurate. Mm. It was very manipulative too. I, I noticed, I mean, it was, it was pretty obvious, especially when the guy sitting next to him, especially when he needed something from him, Yeah. then it's, Hey, you want to get a beer? Like, oh, and yeah. then he even, he even turned and laughed about it. Like to me, that showed me that he was like, wow, that was really freaking easy to get what I wanted out of that guy. Like it would just, mm. you want to get a beer yeah. at some level, you got to say Joe's a complete asshole, right? He's, he's, he's rude. He's abrupt. He's uh, dismissive of the nine one one incoming see. callers. He's ru- arrogant. Yeah. Couldn't you know. care. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you can see he, where he might have got into trouble as an officer. Yeah, but he's uh, he's apparently a. An you experience. have to take charge out on the road, though. You can't yeah. be uh, reliant on other people kind of personality. And I think I don't know how long he was on the force. I don't know if they mentioned that. But you start off as a rookie and you're dependent on your people and then you want to show that you can take it on your own and then you go through a burnout usually within the sixth to 10th year and there you're kind of just angry and pissed off and fuck everybody and I can do this and I felt like they showed that he was and especially of that. because of the trouble he was in mm-hmm. but that he came clean at the end and he wanted to do the right thing and uh, I think that that's and he got punished the, for it yeah but mm-hmm. you know what I think that's a that's a good but you message. guys don't think he did a good job? No, no, no. Well, we, well it's just I, that yeah. I think he uh, did I mean, a good job. He saved two lives, actually. He kind of fucked up in the middle of it, but Lisa, all the people I, involved were still alive. And that, well, I think, I think crossing lucky. the line, crossing the line to calling the guy, calling Henry on his phone and saying, I know what you did. I thought that that was not. No, it was good very risky. I'm not saying do, that. And it didn't really help anything. I think the best thing he did was send the the, the welfare check on the kids. But everything after that seemed like well, it made I everything worse because he would have gotten the to the hospital. That- Look, if Henry had succeeded, he would have gotten his wife to the hospital. Right. But you know is- what, Lisa, you know what I think that was about? That was because he forgot he was in his officer mode instead of remembering that he was on 911. Yeah. So he took sure. it where he w- might have. I don't know because uh, I'm not an officer, but maybe an officer would call and say, I know what you did, you son of a bitch, and I'm, I'm coming to get you. So maybe I think right. that would be not the wisest thing to say, but maybe as an officer, that's what he would have done. I, well, I think that the, him sending the welfare check was basically the only thing with like inside of a procedure that he really accomplished. Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. else was really kind of reckless and just out on a limb. And I think he got really lucky with a lot of things. But I mean, going with the assumption that he got a call from a woman who says she was abducted, not making any judgment, he has to go with that, right? Right. He has right. To respond to sure. that. And when California Highway Patrol says, hey, we can't find them. What is he supposed to do? Say, oh, right. Okay. And he, right. right. He's got to stand. Right. So hmm. he did what he had to do based on the information that he had. And that information changed radically after the brick hit. And so that's very typical. I think that, you know, something you have to just respond with whatever information you have. And I think if he was 
as intuitive as you were, Susie and Katie, that he, you know, he might have been able to pick up on it earlier, but he didn't in that. I think because he was upset and then he was looking at himself as a man and his anger. So it's got to be the man that did harm in this. I don't know why. Speaking of that. I don't know what I wish I could, like you had said when we first talked about or when I asked Katie, did you also pick up that she was the one who did harm to the child? I wish I could catch what my gut caught, but I I have that on the job a lot, actually. Yeah, I know. And when I did my job, when I was in the behavioral analysis unit a number of times, I said, "Uh, you guys are looking in the wrong place. We need to do this to find this kid. And and. I was right, but I don't know why there was billions of possibilities. And I knew, I just knew this. And it's because it's an educated gut. It's built on years of experience. It's got a foundation of thousands of cases. So you're again, trying to, in your conscious mind, which is slow, it works in thousands of a second where your subconscious mind works in trillions of a second. Do you guys want to hear one story real quick? Sure. One quick and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah. 911 situations. So I got a call and usually when you get a 911, like a a 911 hang up is what they call it, but people can stay on the phone, even though that's what it's called. So it was a a hang up. I called it back. No, it was a hang up because I called the 911 number back and a young white male juvenile answered and he says, Oh, nothing's wrong. And I could tell that he wasn't telling the truth. Cause usually mm-hmm. I'd be like, okay, I just want to verify, hang up the end. Right. Something made me not believe that I put the call in and actually he was on the roof wanting to commit suicide. Wow. And if I hadn't put that call in, that's what would have happened. Wow. That's, that's incredible. See, and it, it, calls like that are why, like for my County, anytime you get any kind of hang up or open line or anything, and you can't verify exactly what's going on. Um, we automatically send someone to everyone because we have had those calls where someone was able to get a 911 call out, but then they weren't successful in being able to talk to anybody call, actually right. call out for help. And we had one where a deputy actually ended up responding because one of our dispatchers heard something, something strange in the background. And so they responded and she had actually been held in her house for two or three days and was being beaten by her soon to be ex-husband. And they found her and she ended up being okay, you know, trauma aside and everything. But that's the only reason that anybody knew anything was happening because she got just a fraction of a second out. You know, I I don't know if y'all know, but if the phone doesn't work anymore, if it's, you know, an old Nokia phone that you had in the 90s, um, as long as it's got a charge, doesn't have to have cell service, it'll call 911. And the location will ping any anything. So we have a lot of times kids calling accidentally, you know, because the parents think, oh, it doesn't work anymore. The phone doesn't work. And they let them play with it. And they're pushing buttons and stuff. And next thing you know, I'm talking to a two-year-old on 911. Right. Right. Well, I have a question. It's some what tangential, but I think it's something that we hit on a couple of times for you ladies. And that is about the Petito case, because in that case, sure, you're familiar with it. There were two calls to 911. Yeah, there were two calls to 911. And the first officer, when he stopped them in the van, immediately saw that Gabby was in distress and separated her and started talking to her. The second officer that arrives did something that I think you just mentioned a minute ago, Susie, which is I think he he took his own life circumstances and superimposed them on this case. Absolutely. He even said specifically, oh, it's like my wife, you know, my ex-wife. And that's why we're exes is because she went through all this anxiety and caused all these problems. And so he put it all on her and 
he called up one of the 911 callers and asked, you know, what did you see? And he said, I saw him shove her. But I didn't see whether she did anything to him before that. And the officer's reaction was, well, the caller said he saw him shove her, but didn't know if if she hit him first. So that information is irrelevant at that point. The aggressor, right? He made this assumption. Had he called the other 911 caller, he would have heard, I saw him hit her. I saw him slap her. And that should have tilted it the other way. Unfortunately, he didn't do that. And so this is a missed opportunity to actually get her help, services, and whatever. Would it have saved her life? I don't know. But it certainly would have been an opportunity to try. So my question to you is, one, do the officers, when they're on the road like that, have the ability to just listen to the 911 call? Can they? And would that be a help? To basically well, the 911 calls that we get, the information should be typed in to the header. So they might not be able to talk to the person unless they ask for the number. They could ask how mm-hmm. many people called. I want the phone number so they could call back like, like, right. you know, but we should be as the police dispatcher saying we just got an update. There was a second caller who saw physical from him to her prior to the the one right. where. Okay, it's so. your job as the dispatcher to relay all of that information, because if they're driving down the highway at 80 miles an hour trying to catch up to this van that someone says is a rolling domestic, they don't have time to look over the computer screen and watch every single little note that right. you put in there. But in this particular case, he had time after they stopped him to make calls, mm-hmm. and yet he somehow didn't get that critical information and or he didn't, get that he didn't care to. He didn't care to. He might have been, I want to know how many hours that officer was working. I want to know how long he had been on because maybe he was at a point where, you know what, everybody's against us. Like not necessarily thinking that consciously, but just burned out and done. And these are just two more jerk people who fight all the time and she's going to stay with them no matter what we do. So whatever. Right. And he probably thought, I'm not arresting anybody. I'm not even barely going to write the report on this. I'm just trying to get out of here. You know, no, but the other officer seemed to have a very different take on it. And then this second officer just bullied his way into pushing it another way. He did. The second officer officer kept kept going. Yeah. Whatever you want to do, man, whatever you want to do. It's your call. Like he was sort of. Yeah. Yeah. But the National Park Service female officer actually said to Gabby, hey, it seems like this relationship is kind of toxic for you. Maybe you ought to think about making a change. I mean, she assessed that on the scene, but he didn't ask her. He didn't get anybody else's opinion. He was just superimposing what he knew from his life. Do you know or does anybody know how long that that officer has been on the job? I don't. Because I I mean, not to give any excuse, but I think what probably six to 10 years. What I. What I'm seeing <laughs> in the profession, though, is that there needs to be more support for the people who do this job. Yeah. And less judgment, yep. less micromanaging and more support because everybody is judging or dealing with each other, whether you want to or not, from an emotion. Here, here. And if you don't have the support, the more stressed you are, like I said earlier, the less empathy you've got. Right. And I think in that situation, though, education as well, because 
if they were actually educated in coercive control. This is something that Laura Richards has made a, a major contribution about that you have signs there where where he's clearly lying. They catch him in at least one lie. But if he had talked to the to the other 911 person, they would have caught him in three lies. But right. what did he say as soon as the first officer comes back? Oh, did you talk to my fiance? He wanted to know what did she say? What did you, well, how much trouble am I in? And when so obvious to us, two, I don't know. Officer number two says, so it's clear she's the aggressor and you're the victim. He's like, ah! and he looks at the other officer like, is he kidding? Is he kidding? And then he was all giddy. He was like, yay, I'm free. I got I did it. And then he was joking and all that stuff. Him projecting the blame onto her, her accepting the blame. She had been accepting the blame for the whole situation before mm-hmm. anything else got said. She, it's my fault. I just get uh, OCD sometimes. I, I just and it bothers this, this and him, that, and and it yeah. bothers him. Bless your heart, buddy. If you get bothered by somebody who has some kind of mental disorder of some kind, God forbid you have some empathy for your fiance. Yeah, right. You know, exactly. Laura would say that was Laura would say that was gaslighting. She was just completely Absolutely. gaslit. But to, I just want to just sort of pivot back because I know we're gonna lose we're gonna lose Jim quickly i just want to pivot back to the movie man i just thought this was so well done jake gyllenhaal plays a cop like nobody's fucking business if you saw him in end of watch if you saw him in this he's got that cadence he's got the physicality he's got just the his eyes the authority everything i want to give a shout out to all of the voice actors ethan hawk peter sarsgaard riley kehoe playing emily i mean just so many great great um as well Paul Dano. I mean, they just they just pulled it out. Dean, you want to say what something really quick about the production value? One of the things that really struck me was the wonderful work done on the on the sort of set design and the and the overall look of the film. This is where the big screens that were in inside of the center, even though they might not have been realistic, as I said earlier, they were there for a purpose, I think, which was to show you what the outside world was doing. Because inside of the center, the colors and the lighting are very cool. They're blue. They're, they're calm. They're all practical. They're all from the yeah. screen of yeah. yeah. The, the, you know there are there are reds and and there are but they're small little dots. They're not you know they're just little counterpoints. And everything is calm. The the audio levels are fairly even and calm. And the camera work is very still. So they're, they're cuts and cuts, but it's all happening in front of the camera. And when they show the outside world, what is it? It's apocalyptic, right? Is it's fire? There's right. smoke. There's chaos, there's yeah. crosstalk from, you know, all of the comms and it's smoky and, of course, he's on his puffer, right? So you get the sense that he's hermetically sealed <laughs> inside of this 911 centre. It's his little bubble of order with all of the chaos out there and he's got to project himself out into this, into that sort and of land. Speaking so of, and, I, Jim, you're not going to believe this, but Antoine Foucault, the director was exposed to COVID just before shooting, so he had to quarantine mm-hmm. and direct this from quarantine he was in a van outside of the set the entire time directing it that way and he could like only wave at the actors and that those calls that gyllenhaal has in his ear were real i mean usually that's in post but he was really on the line with riley and really acting in the scene with her which i think is just an incredible choice but anyway well i mean gyllenhaal is clearly one of the premier actors of our time he seems to pick and choose his movies very well and they're all movies in which i think he has i mean he's such a range but Mm -hmm. he has 
shown that he is a completely immersive actor and he can pull it off. And when my brother told me that he saw this movie, The Guilty, and it's basically one guy in a room, but you're on the edge of your seat the entire time. Yeah. I was like, I got to see it. So I saw <laughs> it that night. So I hope everybody does watch this film or actually watches the film first and then listens to this because otherwise you've just heard a <laughs> billion spoilers. That's okay. That's okay. But thank you so much, ladies, for your work for your expertise and for educating us and our listeners, because this is going to be very helpful. And hopefully if anything goes wrong in your family, hopefully you have a calm, cool, collected kid in the house who can call 911 for you. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you, Katie. Thank you, Susie. And thank you, Dean, for this mashup of killer casting and real crime profile. It's been a fun. Yeah, it's been a buzz. It's been a buzz. And All right, I enjoyed it so much. All right. Thank you so much. Right. Take care. Thank you. For Bye, now, guys. this is Real Crime Profile Killer Casting signing off. Killer Casting was created and produced by Lisa Zambetti. Sound editing by Dean Laffin from Real World Productions. Logo art by April Laffin. Theme music provided by Amphibious Zoo Music.